the bodies had uh, basically already been exhumed, but you just saw you you saw a field that was a place of of slaughter. We all think, of course, everybody knows about what's happening in Ukraine. But if you're a Ukrainian, you you wonder to yourself, is, does anyone care about this? Because how can this be going on? How can I be suffering in such a way while other people who would know about it are, what are they doing to stop it? That's Monsignor Kieran Harrington, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States, speaking about his visit to Ukraine earlier this year. Thanks so much for spending a few moments with us here at CatholicPhilly.com. We are the digital media channel of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. I'm your host, Gina Christian. While the Russian invasion of Ukraine is now approaching its seventh month, with thousands killed, millions displaced, and millions more at risk of hunger due to Ukraine's pivotal role in the global food supply chain. The attacks continue assaults launched back in 2014 with the attempted annexation of Crimea and the backing of separatist republics in Ukraine's Donetsk and Luhansk regions. The current war has been marked by particularly gruesome atrocities, including summary executions, deportations, torture, and rape, with genocide investigations now in process. Amid this profound suffering, a number of Catholic organizations have been on the ground in Ukraine to provide both material and spiritual support. One of those organizations is the Pontifical Mission Societies, a network of four societies under the Pope that work to proclaim the gospel and serve those in need throughout the world. Back in April, Monsignor Harrington visited Ukraine on behalf of the societies, and we asked him to share his insights with us. Let's take a listen. Monsignor, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It's my pleasure, Gina. Thank you. Tell us about what the societies are doing to help the people of Ukraine as they battle this latest invasion by Russia, which actually continues aggression begun way back in 2014. Yes. So the uh, pontifical mission societies, there are four uh, different pontifical mission societies. And uh, one is the Holy Childhood or the Missionary Childhood Association. The other is uh, the Society of St. Peter the Apostle, which is for seminarians and uh, religious. Uh, Then uh, third is the Propagation of the Faith, which is well known because uh, uh, Fulton Sheen had headed up the Propagation of the Faith. And then the last is the Missionary Union. So uh, my experience of the four societies in the Ukraine, I think, is important because uh, why did we go? Uh, The Holy Father uh, had suggested that it's not enough to simply give uh, to a charity, but uh, what he suggested to us is is to look in the eyes and to touch the wound. And uh, and so I thought it was important uh, for the Pontifical Mission Societies to be in the Ukraine during this very, very uh, particular time. Because as you know, when people are suffering, that the challenge of suffering is is that you feel like you're alone. And uh, you feel isolated, and uh, and so that this is the existential suffering that one goes through. Do, do people understand what is happening? Why is this happening? Uh, and so, uh, from my perspective, it was important to go to really to be just a companion on the journey. Uh, and in fact, our 
what we raised and were able to give to the missions was relatively small compared to other Catholic organizations. So the Pontifical Missions uh, distributed $300,000, where, you know, the, the Knights of Columbus, uh, Kaniwa, Catholic Near East Welfare Association, uh, CRS, there would be an order of magnitude of, of what we had uh, contributed. So there are a lot of good Catholic organizations that are doing a lot of work, whether it's working with refugees in Poland or Slovakia or Romania, or whether it is actually on the ground in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, uh, providing uh, food and services, uh, there is a lot of activity uh, in the Catholic world to really assist those who are in the midst of suffering. Our help uh, primarily was uh, to seminaries and to help uh, a little bit on the border. We had given some money to one of the Chameleon Fathers so that they would be able to set up uh, a place for refugees. And then actually on the ground, which was food distribution, uh, baskets of food and that sort of thing. So, uh, and it was actually, I was able to see how that, uh, those resources were being, uh, distributed because, uh, I, I myself had been there during the distribution times. And, uh, you can imagine when there's a war, there's just disruption of supplies. So people are in the need of very basic supplies. And the other thing about a war is, is that, you know, the country, uh, Ukraine, is suffering in different ways. <laughs> so if you were to be in Lviv, uh, which is the western part of the country, which was actually part of, of Poland at one point, uh, the suffering is the suffering of taking in brothers and sisters who are displaced by war. So while uh, they are experiencing the air raids and while it's clearly a place that is at war, uh, the, the, the conflict has not reached Lviv. Um, the conflict has reached and had been in Kiev, where I also was, and uh, you can see uh, the impact of a beautiful, very beautiful city, which uh, has has now been scarred uh, by by conflict. And and the scarring is not simply a physical scarring. That was basically on the outskirts. You know, the the center of the city has not really been affected, but the outskirts and the suburbs have definitely been affected, and uh, and the people have been absolutely traumatized. So uh, I was there on, on Good Friday, and uh, Good Friday, according to the Julian calendar, which was a week after our Good Friday, and uh, and when I was there, the experience was to look at old people and dogs. They were each just roaming the streets uh, and aimlessly roaming the streets. And that kind of spoke to um, the real trauma that people had uh, had experienced. You know, uh, on, on Good Friday in the morning, we were at the cathedral uh, for the Ukrainian Catholic Church, and uh, the major archbishop was uh, leading that, uh, was leading the Good Friday services, and it, there were very few people there. It was really a, a handful of priests and a handful of people. And I was, was that because people were too afraid to come? They, they had uh, many had left the city, or they were too afraid to come out. They had just the Russians had really just evacuated, and if you remember, this is just after uh, the Busha uh, site, the massacre site, had been uh, discovered, and so it was really a. Um, was really a, a a very very sad time. In fact, that was what the after the 
after the Good Friday services were over, the Archbishop had come over to me and he said, you know, Father, why are you here? I and mean, I was there with two other American priests. Actually, one was uh, Argentine and the other uh, Cuban, but they had been serving in the United States, so they had come with me. And he said, Fathers, why are you here? And uh, I said, just what I had said uh, to you is, is, is to, it's not enough to just give money, but you have to look into the eye and touch the wound. And the person who was suffering at that moment was the major archbishop. Uh, mm-hmm. And he said to me, you know, Father, you have to go to Boucher. And uh, he asked one of the priests who actually had been a military chaplain uh, to take me there. And uh, and uh, we did go. And it was uh, uh, just a frightful, a frightful scene. And what did you see? The, 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 the bodies had uh, basically already been exhumed. Um, but you just saw the you just you, you saw a field that was uh, a place of, of slaughter. It was, it was completely chaotic. Uh, it was, it, it didn't, there was no reverence to it all. There was a, there was just a great lack of dignity to a place where so many people had just a few weeks before all been killed. Um, and it was actually just down the hill from a church, so it was the juxtaposition of the church, which had been shot up, and uh, and and this place where so many people had been killed, ostensibly by Christians. <laughs> you know, the Russians are Christians. Um, very, uh, you know, very challenging. It just, it, it just, it's hard to sort of describe uh, that experience, and. Uh, after having visited that site and prayed there, uh, you know, we were driving and we passed this, uh, what amounted to, to be like a junkyard, except, uh, now this was a very wealthy suburb, by the way. And when you see this junkyard, it was really not a junkyard. It was all the cars that had been, uh, impacted by war. And, you know, you'd look at a car and you'd say, wow, look at all this destruction. But then you have to realize when you're looking at the cars that there were people in those cars. So when you see a car completely shot up, bombed out, and then you realize that people were there, uh, you know, the blood just, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was quite, uh, it was, uh, it was very, uh, it, it was upsetting. And you don't realize it initially, uh, but then you start to see the, the magnitude of war and the impact upon a civilian population. So that was uh, uh, that was challenging. Then we, we drove a little further. We came to a little part of the town and stopped. And as I said, you to hear these older people just sort of wandering around with with wild animals or domestic animals that now had been just let out of the house. And uh, and. As I say, the question of, like, you know, when you go out and you know you're going to the store, you have a purpose. But when someone is just walking in circles uh, with other people there, uh, almost like a, a feeling like a zombie apocalypse. Um, it, and then, uh, you know, as uh, I get out of the car and uh, my colleagues, we all get out of the car and, and people came over to us and it was the same you, you, you could sense the trauma. 
right? Until they, uh, until someone was able to speak. <laughs> and uh, there was this one woman who was able to speak and to share her experience of having lived in that community when the, when the, when the war really erupted, came upon them, and uh, and in the apartment building, which was took on such enormous fire, where she still lives, and, and in fact, bodies still being in the building uh, because the the Ukrainian authorities haven't yet been able to recover the bodies. Um, it's 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 just it's 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 just appalling, and. Uh, and as one person is able to begin to share their experience, what you then found is everyone wanting to share their experience. You, you could tell that it was just a, this core wound that people needed to process with somebody else. It was very, 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 very meaningful. Actually, a number of Ukrainian journalists joined us. And um, as we were going through the city and the suburbs, we had stopped at one place. I can't remember exactly where. It was a theater. And uh, the journalist, who was not a supporter of the Ukrainian government initially, she just broke down crying, said to me it was her first time leaving her apartment and uh, and seeing this. And uh, it was just... It was just overwhelming. And uh, this person who was clearly someone who was not a fan of the military or, as they say, the current government, she said to me, uh, I just I have this urge to go up to every one of these uh, Ukrainian soldiers and to hug them. You know, the, the woman I had uh, spoken to, her son was lost uh, in this in this conflict. We're, it's sort of sanitized in terms of how we see it here in the United States. Talk about that. Well, uh, you know, uh, the nature of, uh, and I think this really began, uh, you know, in the 90s when, you know, we watched the uh, the Persian Gulf War, the first war, uh, uh, and CNN. Um, you know, it, it plays out uh, like it is a sort of a, a video game or a movie. And so we don't really see the suffering of people, experience the suffering of people uh, on the ground. And that was uh, very, 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 very clear to me. I mean, to be in a war zone, uh, I can tell you, I, uh, I, the place where I was staying in Kiev was I stayed at a hotel where the journalists were staying. And, and that was really quite by design. You know, we could have stayed at the seminary. And I thought to myself, um, you know, the seminary was a little further out and uh, there was nobody really there. And I thought to myself, I don't really want to get cut off in the event that something happens. <laughs> and uh, and all night long, the air raid sirens were going off. And, uh, you know, when you when you're in a shelter, you can your heart is racing because you think that there's going to be bombs dropped um it has an effect on you and and that's how people lived all all, all along in fact uh you know when i first uh, i crossed over through uh, uh from poland and uh when i crossed over you first i was first in a monastery in lviv and uh this monastery was actually a seminary and uh the monastery which was a seminary uh, and the uh, the seminary was a monastic uh, seminary. So these were young men who were going to be monks, who were also going to be priests. And uh, they took in all these displaced uh, people, mostly elderly people, women and children. Now, you can imagine that was very disruptive to a seminary uh, life. And it was a very bucolic 
place sort of out uh, in the woods where you could also hear the air raid sirens, by the way. And uh, as I was speaking to uh, some of the folks who were there, uh, what you what I heard from each of them was the trauma of war, how they were traumatized by war. Mm-hmm. You know, one woman who was really in agony over the fact that her her son, who was maybe eight or nine years old, uh, had spent, you know, two or three weeks in a basement as uh, his village was being pounded by bombs and war and how scared uh, he was. And uh, what, what I also thought was was fascinating in, in the conversation was her disposition immediately changed from a woman who was so upset about the suffering that was inflicted upon her son to this entirely different person who uh, made very clear there would be never a surrender, that uh, you know her son was not going to live cowering, uh, but live free. And that says something uh, when a person, you know, there is a, a meaning to suffering and a meaning to this suffering. And, uh, and while it is terrible and they want it to go away, they will endure it because there is something deeper and more important to them. And that is, uh, and that is freedom. And uh, it, that was just one experience of many where you heard that uh, from people who were in the midst of uh, enormous service. So I have enormous admiration, enormous admiration for them. On Easter, we, we actually had Easter in Lvov. And, uh, and when we were there at the cathedral, uh, the, the liturgy, there were many people, the church was packed. So as I am uh, watching the liturgy, it was, there was a heaviness to it. But I will tell you at the very end, as the archbishop was singing to the people and the people were singing back to them, you heard this joy come through. And uh, this Easter hope that this is not the last word, that the war is not the last word. Well, afterwards, uh, afterwards, I had uh, the opportunity to have uh, lunch with the archbishop. And I have to say, I was very – this is his Easter, and he's having me into his home, and we're sitting there. So I, I walk in, and he walks over, and he hands me an egg. And he says, you know um, – uh, he says it's our custom to give everyone an egg at Easter because an egg is a side of new life. And, uh, you know, we kind of take the Easter egg uh, for granted. But I could tell in that moment uh, there was uh, – it was laden with meaning. And uh, we sat down, and, and and frankly, it was an uncomfortable beginning to the lunch. Uh, I, I kind of felt out of place uh, because I, I just felt like I was imposing on this man who was uh, – who was – obviously suffering but as the uh, meal went on you could see i guess his reluctance was is does anyone know what is happening here is anyone even aware it's a it's a fascinating thing you know we all think of course everybody knows about what's happening in ukraine but if you're a ukrainian you you wonder to yourself is does anyone care about this because how can this be going on how can I be suffering in such a way while other people who would know about it aren't? What are they doing to stop it? 
Well, and especially that is true in light of the fact that we have the word genocide thanks to a professor who studied at Lviv. Yes. And we have a genocide convention in place, and the term genocide is now finally coming to the fore. We've had independent analyses that have documented that that genocide convention has been breached, and in breaching it, there is a duty to prevent. That's right. Do you think that some of that informed the major archbishop's sorrow and grief, the fact that, and of his fellow Ukrainians, that this sense of how can this be happening again? This is the other part of this is that many of the Ukrainians have family in Russia. And so their suffering and what they're experiencing uh, is, seems to be disconnected from the reality of even their, their cousins, aunts, uncle, what have you. But because of this war, um, the Ukrainians do not see the Russians as their brothers anymore. As your question is, is the world doing enough? Well, uh, the war hasn't stopped, so we're not doing enough. And, you know, when uh, when our economic interests are supersede the the suffering of people who are who are who are in, you know, in other parts of the world, that that speaks to, I think, another problem. Uh, in you know this global human family, and uh, and that means you know if uh, if, uh, if sanctions against a country uh, are going to have an adverse effect uh, upon us economically, well, we can endure that adverse economic consequence because the <laughs> the suffering of people who are losing their lives and their livelihood and their childhood uh, that's that's far that's far greater a sacrifice that others are making. You've already gotten into a topic that I wanted to bring up, because one of the outcomes of this war is that deepened sense of global interconnection, especially since we see how Ukraine is so pivotal to the global food supply. We see nations cooperating in response, often nations that had differing opinions going into the war. Talk a little bit, though, about how the mission spirit got us there. The fact that, you know, your founderess, Pauline Jarico, am I pronouncing her name correctly? Yes, that's right. My French pronunciation can be a little iffy at best. Talk a little bit about your founderess and how she had a vision that extended well beyond her little town. Well, Pauline, uh, who was just beatified in May, and we are celebrating the 200th anniversary of her establishing the propagation of the faith, uh, Pauline herself was a French a noble woman. Uh, she was from a fairly wealthy family, but she comes of age immediately after the French Revolution. And by the way, into a church that was very divided. You know, there was the established church in France and versus the, the church which had been loyal to the Holy Father, to the papacy. And so there was all sorts of conflict in, in, in France as she was coming of age. Uh, but as this young woman herself, she has and she endures suffering. She she had a uh, medical she had a, she had a fall and then as a result a, a sort of a an infection that really had a bad effect upon her. This suffering that she endures uh, really leads to the establishment of what is the propagation of the faith, and that's bringing together women who work in the silk factory for her family to pray the rosary together and to offer a penny a week for the missions. And it's 
this work that actually allows for the church in the United States to grow. So much of uh, the resources that uh, for Pauline, the, the pennies that she collected from not just her workers, but the, a movement that spread all throughout France and, and throughout the world, really came to the United States to help the church uh, grow here in the United States. So Pauline, even though she lived in France, had a view that she herself was to help a church beyond France. And I think that uh, this is uh, in part because her brother was a seminarian and he wanted to serve very much. And, and in Vietnam, he was unable to because of his uh, and because of his health. But, you know, he, he, when he was getting ready to 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 embark on this mission, he said, now you have to help me by helping getting the people here to support uh, the missions abroad. And that's a, exactly what she did. And this is also why, you know, St. Therese of Lisieux can be patroness of the missions. You know, when you think about mission month is in October, uh, this is the uh, also the uh, the feast day of St. Therese of Lisieux. Why is it that the feast day of St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, the month where we dedicate to uh, the road all take place in the same month where we have World Mission Sunday. It's a, there's a certain logic behind this from the church. It's the idea that we have to go outside ourselves. Maybe we, uh, uh, the church in the United States, where there are so many divisions between the left and the right, between those who say they're Orthodox versus those who are progressive, those who want the old Latin mass versus the, 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 the mass of, of Paul VI, whatever it might be. Um, maybe part of these conflicts uh, is because we're so inward looking and we're really not looking at the proclamation of the gospel uh, outside of our own our own country. And uh, and I think that that is something that, you know, we ought to really consider the 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 difference for the Society for the Propagation of Faith, as opposed to CRS, for instance, CRS does a lot of humanitarian work. But the work of the Society for the Propagation of the Faith and Holy Childhood and the Society of St. Peter is is primarily focused on evangelization, uh, almost exclusively focused on evangelization. So it's the idea that, you know, man does not live on bread alone, that uh, that what we do need is uh, we need we need to hear the word of God spoken to us uh, because that is what gives us uh, consolation, uh, strength, and that's what actually is leads to our salvation uh, and to the, the the place where you know we are all here. We don't have here a lasting city. Our real country is not here. Our country is in heaven. This is our home, and and this is why we are all called uh, to to recognize that uh, despite where we may have been born, uh, we are all brothers and sisters because we've all been born in the waters of baptism. So this is the this is the primary work of the Society of the Propagation of the Faith, and it was the primary work of uh, Pauline, and it has played itself out in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, again, because uh, if you consider what has happened, uh, the history of Ukraine is is one of domination, Russian domination, German domination, and the Russian domination uh, really, especially under the communist, communist, led to the church to be disestablished. And so, you know, typically, what 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 distinguishes the work of the propagation of the faith is we're in a new we we work in new mission territories, so places that have yet to hear the gospel. Just hearing the gospel, the nascent church, the the young church, the church that has not 
establish the structures in order to uh, yet sustain itself. And uh, and this actually has happened in parts of the Ukraine because of because of the domination of the Russians and particularly the communists, which led to the destruction of the church. And so the church, which uh, which really needed to uh, to hear the gospel once more and to be built up. I mean, over 70 years, uh, the, the Ukrainians had experienced uh, this domination, especially in the eastern part of Ukraine. And so uh, it's, a, it's a very, very important work uh, that we're engaged in, and it's a privilege to be engaged in. How can people help the societies and their work in Ukraine? So, uh, as I say, you know, everyone has, uh, there are many different organizations that uh, that people could be involved in that they can help. So the Knights of Columbus are doing great work. And so if you're a knight, you might want to get involved with what the Knights of Columbus are doing, because they're doing great work on the borders, helping refugees. And it is going to matter because a lot of women and a lot of children have lost their fathers. So their problem is not a, just a momentary one. There is going to be a systemic problem uh, in places like Poland and Slovakia and other places. So the work of the Knights of Columbus is a very, very important work. The work of CNEW, a Catholic Near East Welfare Association, is also very, very important. It's helping support, as I say, the Eastern Church and and the work of the Eastern Church. And this is a church which has now very much been wounded. Many of the priests uh, in Ukraine are, are married priests. And uh, and so, you know, their families and their family life has been affected by this. And and so the, the church has to be attentive uh, to to their suffering as well and to ensure the vibrancy of the, the vocations that are taking place in Ukraine. And I think also through the uh, Society for the Propagation of Faith, uh, there is enormous work to be done both uh, at, for, at the evangelical level uh, to ensure that uh, seminaries are able to be uh, sustained, to ensure that uh, religious uh, life is able to be sustained by the formation of religious sisters, to ensure that uh, Catholic schools uh, and places of learning are able to be established so that people can come to know Christ so that if they know him, they might be able to love him. And uh, and people can help us by going to Missio. Uh, dot org. So there are so many Catholic groups that are on the ground, uh, and uh, and we're all privileged uh, to be have to have some share in the work of helping those who are suffering so greatly. Monsignor Karen Harrington, thank you so much for spending some time with us and for sharing your insights on Ukraine. You and the societies remain in our prayers. We hope you'll come back soon and share more of your good work in Ukraine and throughout the world. Thank you, Gina. God bless you. And that was Monsignor Kieran Harrington, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. To learn more about the societies and to donate to their work in Ukraine, visit missio.org, that's M-I-S-S-I-O dot O-R-G, forward slash help Ukraine. You've been listening to CatholicPhilly.com from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Thanks so much to our publisher, Archbishop Nelson Perez, to you, our listeners, and of course, to our Lord, without whom none of this would be possible. You can find us online at CatholicPhilly.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CatholicPhilly. I'm your host, Gina Christian, and until next time, may God bless and keep you.